0: The Bain Free Radio Hour.
1: On the podcast, ginger beer and a few billion dollars take humans to Mars. Mobile site beta testing madness and December books a leapin'. Plus, part 38 of the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. The holidays are now well underway. Don't forget to help those less fortunate during the holiday season. Although, since you're a Bain reader, I know you won't forget... And you'll give your help intelligently. We have an interview with science fiction legend Ben Bova coming up. Ben is a six-time Hugo-winning writer, former editor of Omni Magazine, former editor of Analog. He is president emeritus of the National Space Society and uh, past president of the Science Fiction Writers of America. The guy gets around. We have a new hardcover by Ben Bova now out at Booksellers. That is Mars Incorporated, The Billionaire's Club, or Mars Incorporated, or Mars Inc., however you want to say it. And we'll be talking to Ben about that new book and more coming up. But first, Laura Haywood Corey joins me for all the news that's fit to podcast in about three minutes. (music) We are starting to roll out a new Bain mobile site and Bain app for beta testing in the next few weeks. If you are interested in participating in the Bain Books Mobile Site Beta Test, we're doing the mobile site first, and then we'll roll out the apps as well. That's underway. You can.
2: So where do I sign up?
1: You don't have to. It's sitting there on the web for you to take a look at.
2: Excellent. So how do I get there?
1: Pretty easy, actually. Easy to remember. baneebookscom forward slash mobile. That's Bain eBooks. All you have to do is check the mobile site out, play around with it on your mobile device, and send us feedback about your experience, what you liked, what you had problems with, etc.
2: How do I send feedback?
1: Well, we have an email address for that. It's very easy, mobile at Bain.com. Or, if you're from Alabama, mobile at (laughs) Bain.com. M-O-B-I-L-E at Bain.com.
2: So what kind of feedback are we looking for here?
1: All sorts, really. Ease of use. Uh, What do you think of the look of the mobile site? Places the site might have uh, crapped out on you. Bugs of any sort. Plus, once you get the flavor of it, we'd love to hear new ideas on how to extend the feature. Now, for those that don't know, a mobile site is uh, a website that's designed for use on mobile devices.
2: So this is just for the mobile site that you would look at on, say, your mobile device browser like Safari on an iPhone, something like that? Yeah,
1: for the coming week, and then we'll roll out the apps, the coming week being December 8th, 2013. The app will be ready to beta test next week on both iOS and Android devices, the Bain app, and we'll tell you how to do that should you want to participate. In next week's news.
2: So the two things I have to remember are the mobile site's current web address, which is baneebooks.com forward slash mobile.
1: That's right, bainebooks.com. That's not bane.com. It's baneebooks.com, all one word, forward slash mobile, M-O-B-I-L-E.
2: And the feedback email, which is mobile at com.
1: Yeah, mobile at com M-O-B-I-L-E at Bain, B-A-E-N, dot com. So if you are a mobile device user, we would love your feedback, oh listener. We want to make these new offerings useful, to make them webby things that really plug into the books and authors you love, and become part of your reading life. We don't want it to be something you use once and then don't look at again, and to do that, we could use your help. We want to welcome Ben Bova to the podcast. Hello, Ben. Hello, Tony. Ben Bova has written more than 120 futuristic novels and nonfiction books and has been involved in science and high technology since the very beginning of the space age. President Emeritus of the National Space Society, past president of Science Fiction Writers of America, then received the Lifetime Achievement Award of the Arthur C. Clarke Foundation uh, in 2005 as well for fueling mankind's imagination regarding the wonders of outer space. He's the winner of six Hugo Awards, is, is that right, Ben? That's right, yep. And his articles, opinion pieces, and reviews have appeared in Science, Scientific American, Nature, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and many other newspapers and magazines. Earlier, he was an award-winning editor at Analog and Omni, as well as being a writer, and an executive in the aerospace industry. For Bain, he's the author of the wonderful humorous short story collection Laugh Lines, which you should check out. His latest novel is Mars Incorporated, The Billionaire's Club, which is now out from Bain at booksellers everywhere. Ben Mars Incorporated is a great story about one man putting his all into getting a private manned expedition to Mars underway. It's in the same sort of genre as Robert A. Heinlein's The Man Who Sold the Moon. It's kind of an accepted myth in some quarters that such a huge undertaking as going to another planet isn't even within the grasp of a single nation, much less a private corporation or an individual, why is the idea of a private venture so compelling to science fiction writers like Heinlein and you?
3: As the first line of the book says, the goddamn government isn't going to do it. <laughs> so somebody has to. And there are plenty of people just within the United States, billionaires, who could fund a program to Mars and never even feel hurt from it.
1: How much would it cost, do you estimate? How much does Art Thrasher think it's going to cost in the book? I suppose. Uh,
3: what did I say? A hundred billion? Yeah. Yeah, so you get ten guys chip in ten billion a piece over a five year period, and they take it all off their taxes.
1: Now that's the uh, that's the conceit of the book. Was this something that um, occurred to you as a as an idea, or did it um, did you?
3: Oh yeah, it occurred to me years ago. I figured Bill Gates could fund a uh, an expedition to Mars all by himself if he wanted to.
1: So, in the book, there are some great billionaire characters, and I couldn't help thinking they bear certain similarities to a few characters in the present day uh no. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so how does our hero art Thrasher get a hard headed person who has spent a life building a business uh making money to to take a bet on such a risky venture why Why hasn't Bill Gates done this um, and how does art uh
3: there's no art Thrasher running around
1: I see. Well, what's his, what's his secret? What kind of character is this that you've uh, conceived that could get some somebody to cough up that kind of dough?
3: Well, Thrasher is very determined, and it all goes back to his childhood, of course. But he is the kind of guy who won't let go of an idea once he has it. And he would rather die than give it up. So uh, he gets the job done. And, of course, the people he's talking to, these multi-billionaires, part part of their their motivation is to get Thrasher off their goddamn backs. (laughs) But Thrasher is right in his estimation that they could do this without feeling a pinch from it. They are so wealthy. They've got so much money that uh, funding an expedition to Mars is something that they could and should do.
1: Well, I picture Art as this kind of bulldog who won't let go of, of your of your pants leg or your actual leg until you <laughs> uh, go where he wants you to go. Uh, can you tell us a bit about where the, his vision came from in the book and uh, what sort of so, p- man he is?
3: Basically, he wants to show his father, who is dead, that he can do more than make money. Now, Thrasher's not a billionaire, but he's quite wealthy, and... Uh, he wants to uh, give Mars to his father, who always looked on his actions as a little uh, less than than he expected.
1: Yeah, And his father, father was an academic. Yeah, yeah. He,
3: and Art is a born businessman.
1: So it's the classic case of the son who didn't really follow in the dad's path, still wanting to impress him, and the, the dad yes. just not being impressed. There are several different. Let's uh, let's step back and. And can you give me the premise of the whole uh, Billionaires Club?
3: Oh, it's simply getting together a group of American billionaires to chip in money to fund a manned expedition to Mars. There's no club per se. It's, it's just a sort of an informal group of people, some of whom hate Thrasher's guts and want him to fail.
1: How does he manage to uh, keep this, this group of contentious fellows together for the amount of time it will take to, I mean, much less the money, but it, it can't be done in one year or two years, correct?
3: Right. It's a five-year program. And basically, one of the geniuses, genius steps that Treasury uses is to try to keep these people apart as much as possible. Mm-hmm. He doesn't really want them all there together. When he has board meetings of Mars Incorporated, that's when he really runs into trouble, because then all the big shots are there, and they all have their ideas, and all have their uh, hopes and fears, and some of them have their knives sharpened for Thrasher.
1: You're the President Emeritus of the National uh, Space Society. I assume that you have some pretty uh, firm ideas about how a Mars mission might be accomplished. What are uh, some of the competing ideas, and why did uh, the one that you settled on here in the book, is it something that you think is the right way to do it?
3: Yeah, I think the simplest and safest way is to uh, assemble your Mars vehicle in orbit. You don't need to build great big heavy launch boosters. We've got plenty of boosters that can send up segments, and then you put it together in orbit, you
1: test it in space, you send your crew, and off you go. Now, I saw in the news today, Dennis Tito, uh, I believe is his name, uh, the first space tourist has a big Mars proposal out and he, yes, he says that government has to be involved in his uh, idea of how it works. Um, there's also the Mars One idea, which is that you just go and stay. Are, are these both flawed ways of doing it or are they?
3: Well, I'd say they're not the way Art Thrasher would do it. (laughs) Yeah. Thrasher doesn't want the government involved. He's very upset when he realizes that he's going to have to ask NASA to uh, use some of their launch facilities at Cape Canaveral. And, of course, NASA bureaucracy doesn't want Thrasher to succeed. They, uh, they look on a private mission as competing with NASA, although NASA has no mandate from the government to send people to Mars.
1: Do you think this reflects anything in reality now, or is it... Um, yes. Yeah.
3: It's exactly where we are today. Ah. NASA is sitting there going to the International Space Station, but ever since the Apollo days, NASA hasn't gone farther than low-Earth orbit with human beings. It's done a magnificent job exploring the planets with robots, robotic vehicles, but they're only, you know, capable of doing so much. If you really want to explore Mars, you're going to need people there to do it.
1: Why might that be? Because that's always a big argument. The the robots can do it.
3: The robots don't do it by themselves. The robots have human directors. And directing a robot on Mars is a little tricky because it takes at least 15 minutes to get uh, an order from Earth to the vehicle on Mars.
1: So there's some you have to have some sophisticated software just to keep accidents from happening, because you well, can't... And
3: at heart, the robot can only answer questions that have already been programmed into it. Human beings are much more flexible. And I, I think if we really want to learn and explore, we're going to have to send people.
1: How long is it going to take? What's a mission to Mars uh, involved? But it's nearly two years, isn't it, there and back?
3: depends on how long you want to stay on Mars. You can get to Mars in six months or even less if you really boost, uh, you know, a high G boost. But uh, low energy trip to Mars takes about nine months. And then it depends on how long you want to stay on Mars and putter around. But it's nine months one way. Yeah, Maximum.
1: Now back to the book. We might expect that there are uh, some setbacks along the way, as as there should be in any uh, any good fiction. Some of some of which are accidents, some not so much. Um, I've thought before that the risk adverse nature of of most big big business is going to balk at something uh, with a huge downside, like a Mars mission. What was what was Art's uh, backstop for catastrophic failure, or did he have one? In the book? Not really. No.
3: Just plow on. One of the advantages of the way Art is doing it, Art Thrasher is doing the Mars mission, is that it's not a business. It's not a company per se. It's a group of people that he has put together, you know, financial backers, and the organization as such is directly under Thrasher. He's running it. He's running it with every drop of his blood. So he's not risk-averse. He's ready to take the risks and correct the problems as they arise. You talk risk-averse, think of NASA. They uh, are very, you know, very averse to doing anything, and they're under the government's direction, which makes things even worse.
1: Very true. I have thought that the world might be divided into two kinds of people, as, you know, as is often said, um, those who think that space or Space exploration opens up a, an endless vista of possibilities, those that see the glass half full, I guess, and, and those who fear it and, or are indifferent to it. Where do you think this desire that you and I feel to get out there and explore this this uh, vast universe comes from? And why why doesn't everybody have it? Why aren't we out there now?
3: If human beings weren't explorers by nature, we'd be sitting in Olduvai Gorge right now. <laughs> <laughs> We we have always voted with our feet. We have always moved on where the pastures might be a little better. And even if they're not, we keep exploring. We keep pushing the envelope. We have a biological drive. Every species, every organism on Earth strives to increase its living area. It expands wherever it can go. With our modern technology we can expand beyond the limits of the Earth. And we're, do- we're doing that, but in a very hesitant way, mainly because space exploration so far has been the domain almost entirely of governments, government programs. And government programs are run by politics. We went to the moon not because of the urge to explore, but because we wanted to beat the Russians. And once we got to the moon before the Russians could, the government's interest in space exploration practically evaporated. If it hadn't been for Carl Sagan and a few other scientists convincing the government that you could explore the planets with robotic vehicles, there'd be no space exploration at all today. Now, the character of Art Thrasher goes back to something that George Bernard Shaw said many years ago. Shaw said, the rational person adapts himself to his environment. The irrational person tries to adapt the environment to himself. Hmm. Therefore, all progress depends on irrational people.
1: Well, I hope there's enough of us to, uh, to, <laughs> to do an irrational thing like go to Mars someday. Um,
3: <laughs> I, think, I think it will happen sooner or later. Uh, we, as I said, we don't have an art thrasher to be the catalyst to make it happen. But that person is out there someplace, and, and we'll, be, we'll be hearing from him.
1: Yeah. Well, you see so many abortive attempts or, or attempts by people who, who have means, uh, some of these tech, uh, tech billionaires, trying to get there, but they're just not quite there yet.
3: Well, they're doing some interesting things, like uh, forming companies to explore the asteroids. And uh, I think this is a commercial operation, a commercial possibility of enormous scope.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you think the profit motive will uh, will be the driving factor, or is it just the uh, the innate desire to get out there, or both?
3: I think both will come into play. Uh, the innate desire to get out there is what pushes you in that direction. But underneath it, there is the possibility of profit. And let's face it, there, there are many private companies operating in space today, most of them will fail. Some of them will kill people. But the payoff in knowledge, in wealth, is so enormous that we'll in- inevitably do it. There is more wealth in the terms of energy and natural resources out there in space than the whole planet Earth can provide us and eventually we can move most of our industrial operations into space and turn the earth into a clean and green world. The possibilities are literally endless, and people will do it. It's just a matter of time.
1: Let me ask you about your involvement in science fiction, just to, uh, to change gears for a moment. You, you're a rather storied presence in science fiction, I think, um, as a writer and an editor. What is it about this genre that would lead a man of your considerable skills uh, to, vote, to devote a career to it?
3: <laughs> the simple answer is I like it.
1: <laughs> um, is it related to that same idea of, uh, of exploration? Or It
3: goes back to when I was 11 years old, first time I went to a planetarium, and they turned off all the lights and turned on the stars. Man, that turned me on, too. And I've been active and interested in that area ever since in astronomy, in astronautics, and those interests led me to science fiction back in the 1940s. Stories about what it might be like to go to the moon, to go to Mars, and how the human spirit will react to these new possibilities. So that's what got me into science fiction, and I've been there ever since.
1: Well, I happen to know we're bringing out another uh, BOVA co-written book, uh, because it's coming out next summer from Bain, uh, called Rescue Mode that you're writing with NASA scientist Les Johnson. Can you tell us a bit about that, How it's uh, what it's about? It's a Mars book, too, as well, isn't it?
3: Yeah, it's it's sort of taking the Apollo 13 story and projecting it into a Mars mission, where on a mission to Mars, the vehicle is damaged, And they're too far away to turn back easily. They've got to go all the way to Mars before they can turn around and return. The things they go through, the repairs they have to create on the ship, uh, the bravery, the rivalries, the problems that they have, both human and technological, uh, make, I think, for a fascinating story.
1: Having read it, uh, I think it's pretty great as well. Um,
3: yeah, but you had some comments to make about
1: it. Well, that's my job. But uh that uh, it's a great story and and I love the twist that we can't reveal, but uh it's it's a wonderful book as well. We're talking about Mars Incorporated now. Anything else that uh that we might want to say about this, uh about art, about uh what about those women in the story? Um every Bova book I I come across often has this uh the man conflicted by two women he must choose from. Yes one sort of the the more homey and nice type, another the the dazzling beauty. Why is this motif run through your fiction? Is it just a, a way to create drama?
3: No, no. It, it, human beings have men and women. You know, they're not just soft fellows. They're different from
1: I've us. I've noticed that, yeah.
3: And most of the characters that I write about are, are based on people that I know. They're never exact portraits. They always are blends of different people. But uh, it would be a pretty dull story without women involved and without romance, which oh. is spelled S-E-X.
1: Yeah. Uh, I agree. One other question about Art. Uh, where did this ginger beer thing come from? He drinks ginger beer. It's such a big love ginger beer. beer. You love ginger beer?
3: Yeah. Yep. I first ran across it in Australia where they mix it with uh, brandy, and they call it Brandy and Dry. And I found out that not only is it great with brandy in it, but ginger beer is also very good without brandy. It's sort of a, a stronger version of ginger ale, and it's a, a great drink.
1: Well, Art certainly chugs enough of it. So, uh,
3: Well, you know, he's, he's not the only person to do that sort of thing. Bob Guccione used to live on Diet Coke. He would drink, God, gallons of it per day.
1: Uh, that was back when uh, you were the editor at Omni that you noticed that? or
3: Yes. Ah. Bob never had a bottle of Diet Coke farther away from him than he could reach. Boy, that was an awkward sentence. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, what was um, one other question about the old days? Uh, how did you come to be editor at Analog? I've always found that a great story.
3: Me as well. When John Campbell died, first thought that went through my mind was, There Goes Analog, the best magazine in the business. And uh, suddenly I got a call from the management of Condé Nast Publications, which owned Analog at that time, asking me to come to New York and talk about being the editor. Uh, I knew that they were talking to lots of other people, too. And lo and behold, they picked me. I uh, spent a year... On the magazine, uh, with some trepidation, but things were going very well. Circulation was climbing. Uh, the readership was very loyal. And I finally worked up the nerve to ask the guy who hired me why he picked me, because I knew that there are many other people in the science fiction field much better known than I, much more steady contributors to Analog than I was. But I got picked. And the man said to me, Ben... We up here in the management of Condé we don't know anything about science fiction or about analog. All we knew is that it makes a profit every month, and it's number one in its field. So we asked steady contributors to the magazine to draw up a list of possible editors, and each list we got from each of these different contributors had your name on it. So then I made it my business to read some of the f- fiction and nonfiction that each possible candidate had written for the magazine, and Ben, he said, "You're the only guy I could understand." <laughs> so, so clarity, you know, growing up on newspapers was an important asset.
1: Yeah, well, that's the uh, that's some of the beauty of the prose of Mars Incorporated too. It's it's straightforward, it's action driven, and and yet it it has feeling and and verb behind it. So, the book is Mars Incorporated, The Billionaires Club. It is out in hardcover and ebook from Bain and at booksellers everywhere. Ben, thank you so much for being with us today.
3: Thank you, Tony, for everything.
1: And now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. This portion of Shadow of Freedom is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free, or choose from more than a 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Okay, here's what has gone before. After a fierce war, Honor Harrington's Star Kingdom of Manticore has entered into a simmering low-level conflict with the ancient aristocratic Solarian League. The Solarian League is crumbling and on the verge, a region at the edge of its empire, rebellion is brewing. The Solarian Office of Frontier Security is in charge of keeping the peace on the verge. Brutal tactics and puppet dictatorships are par for the course for the OFS. Rebels opposed to the oppressive regimes can't hope to match the military might of the OFS which backs them up without outside aid. Aid they are receiving in the form of weapons drops by agents claiming to represent the star empire but it's a ruse these agents actually serve the shadowy mason alignment eugenic supremacist who wish to see the solarian league and the star empire at war royal manticoran navy admiral michelle hinka countess goldpeak commands the rmn forces in the nearby talbot quadrant Goldpeak is sympathetic to the rebels, but is looking for the right place to strike a blow on their behalf. Now that she has discovered the series of false promises made by Mason agents masquerading as Star Kingdom operatives, Goldpeak is ready to move against the outermost Solly system. And when couriers from resistance movements arrive requesting aid promised by lying Mason agents, Goldpeak seizes the opportunity. Here is Part 38 of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom.
0: Chapter 28 Yes, Augustus, what can I do for you this morning? Damus Del Baroness Medusa, asked with a smile. The expression felt a bit strange, but not because she wasn't happy to see the face on her calm. Although there'd been a time when Augustus Kumalo hadn't been her favorite person, those days were gone. It was just a bit hard to find a lot of things to smile about in the wake of the dispatches which had finally reached Spindle two T-days ago. Close to two million dead. Two million more dead, even if most of them were from the other side. And confirmation that the Star Empire truly was at war with the Solarian League wasn't the sort of news that made someone want to turn handsprings of delight. Still, it's better than having the two million dead on our side— "'which is what those solid bastards had in mind,' she reminded herself grimly. "'And at least the Solarian League's present management "'obviously can't find its own backside with both hands. "'That's a two-edged sword, "'since it means they're unlikely as hell to realise the smart move would be "'to rethink their policies and let both of us back away from a war "'that's going to get God only knows how many more people killed.' But if they're bull-headed and arrogant enough to keep right on pushing harder instead, it looks an awful lot like they are. Then thank God they're at least incompetent about it. And having Haven, Haven on our side for a change is a lot better than a kick in the head, too. Good morning, my lady. Admiral Kumalo responded. Sorry to disturb you this early, but I've just received despatches from Admiral Goldpeak. There was something a little peculiar about his tone, Medusa thought. Under the circumstances, I thought I should probably share them with you as soon as possible. Is there a problem? She asked, her smile fading. Not any immediate problem, no, he replied. But it's definitely something we're going to have to deal with, probably in the not-too-distant future, and I guarantee you, you're going to think it was as unexpected as I did. I'd feel a lot better without that qualifier immediate, and I'm not all that fond of unexpected now that I think about it, she said sourly. He nodded and she sighed. Should I roust out Joachim or Henry for this? At the moment, I think this is more of a matter for your imperial governor persona, than for anybody in the Talbot Quadrant, Kumalo said after a moment's thought. It may be appropriate for you to bring them in later. In fact, I think it probably will be. But for right now, I think you should hear about this yourself, before you decide what else to do. You're not making me feel any happier here, Augustus, she said dryly as she tapped a command to open her daily calendar in a window in the corner of the com display. I've got just under an hour and a half clear starting now, she told him. Can you get here in that window? And if you can, should I see about clearing the rest of the morning? I can be there in thirty minutes, he replied. As to how long this is going to take, in some ways, your guess is as good as mine. It could take a while, though. Wonderful. Should I ask Gregor to sit in? Actually, I think that would be a very good idea. As a matter of fact, with your permission, I think it might be a good idea for me to bring along Loretta and Ambrose as well. Fine. In that case, I'll see you here in Government House in half an hour. Admiral Kumalo, his Chief of Staff, and his Senior Intelligence Officer actually arrived in barely twenty minutes. In fact, Gregor O'Shaughnessy had reached Medusa's office less than five minutes before the three naval officers were ushered through its door. He and Medusa stood to greet the newcomers, and the Baroness's eyes narrowed in speculation as she spotted the fourth member of Kumalo's party, the one the Admiral had somehow forgotten to mention to her might be coming. The stranger was a civilian and a supremely unremarkable-looking one. His sandalwood complexion was perhaps a shade darker than Medusa's own, his hair and his eyes were brown, and he was of average height. A solarian by his dress, but not a core-worlder. His standard upper-mid-level bureaucrat's outfit was at least six or seven t years out of date by core-world standards. Probably a fairly senior local employed in a managerial role by one of the transstellars doing business in the shell, she thought. And just what exactly does Augustus think he's doing bringing a Solarian civilian into my office? The thought was not a happy one, but she donned her politician's face and smiled in welcome. Augustus, Captain Shoup, Commander Chandler, good to see you. And this would be... She let the question hover and cocked her head at the Solarian. This is Mr. Ankenbrandt, Madam Governor, "'Kumalo supplied. "'And to be honest, he's the reason for this meeting. "'I beg your pardon?' "'Despite herself, Medusa's response carried a sharp edge of surprise, "'and Kumalo gave her a slightly apologetic smile. "'Mr. Onkenbrandt arrived with a coded dispatch from Admiral Goldpeak, milady. "'he explained. "'I've had my crypto section verify it, "'and it's definitely from the Admiral,' It explains why she sent Mr. Ankenbrant on to speak to us, but she suggested, and I think it was a good suggestion, that you should talk to him yourself before reading her own report. I think she'd like you to form your own first impressions without any prior influence from her. Well, that all sounds suitably mysterious, Medusa said a bit tartly, then gazed at Ankenbrant for several seconds. Despite his somewhat mouse-like initial impression, he looked back without flinching. Not that he wasn't nervous, she could see that, but he concealed well. Very well, Mr. Ankenbrandt. I'll listen to what you have to say. Why don't we all be seated first, though? Everyone found a chair, and the Baroness sat back comfortably behind her desk. One thing I should add before we begin, Madam Governor, Kumalo said. She looked at him, and he shrugged. Admiral Goldpeak personally interviewed Mr. Ankenbrandt before sending him on to us. I thought you should know she did so with a tree cat present. Medusa's almond eyes narrowed for a moment. Then she nodded. Very well, she said again, then turned her attention back to Ankenbrandt. Why don't you start, Mr. Ankenbrandt? My God, Admiral, couldn't you give us just a little warning before dropping something like that on us again? O'Shaughnessy demanded acidly the better part of two hours later. Medusa's senior intelligence analyst was a lifelong civilian who had never been a huge fan of military intelligence before joining her staff. Over the last few years, he had learned to get along better than he ever had before with his uniformed colleagues, but there were moments when he backslid, and it was seldom helpful when he did, the baroness thought acerbically, since he tended to engage his mouth before his brain when that happened. Which was a pity, since he really did have a very good brain when he remembered to use it. "'If I may remind you, Gregor,' she said, intervening before Kumalo could respond, "'the Admiral specifically told us when he introduced Mr. ankenbrandt "'that Admiral Goldpeak wanted us to form our own initial impressions cold,' I happen to think that was a good idea on her part. But whether it was or not, he made it very clear before we ever began why he hadn't pre-briefed either of us on it. O'Shaughnessy colored at the unmistakable frost in the governor's tone. He started to say something, then made himself stop, and his nostrils flared as he drew a deep breath. Yes, my lady. He looked Kumalo in the eye. My apologies, Admiral. Don't worry about it. Kumalo's tone might have been just a little short, but he didn't let irritation distract him. Instead, he turned back to Medusa. Milady, I very much doubt that you and Mr. O'Shaughnessy could have been any more surprised than I was when Ankenbrand screened me and introduced himself with one of Admiral Goldpeak's authenticator code words. And I know you couldn't have been any more surprised than I was, when he arrived aboard Hercules and handed over a secure navy message chip from her. Having read her message, I've brought a copy of it along for you and Mr. O'Shaughnessy, and heard Ankenbrandt's story, though. I think we've got a hexapuma by the tail in this one, and it's not even really our hexapuma. Assuming Ankenbrandt really is telling us the truth, and not a plant who's somehow found a way to fool even a tree cat when he lies— I'm afraid it is our Hexapuma, Admiral, O'Shaughnessy said thoughtfully. He'd obviously gotten over his initial peak and reengaged his brain, Medusa noted. This is incredibly clever on someone's part. The potential consequences, if dozens of planetary resistance movements get slaughtered when they believe, completely accurately, as far as they know, the Star Empire's promise to support them... He shook his head, his expression grim, and Kumalo nodded. That's approximately the analysis Admiral Goldpeak sent along. The tall, heavily built Admiral chuckled suddenly. The analysis, I might add, which was initially proposed by Ensign Zilwicky. No, really, Medusa smiled. The acorn doesn't fall far from the tree, does it? I don't believe she has any inclination to become a spook, Madam Governor, Kumalo said. Doesn't mean she doesn't have the instincts, though. And personally, I'm pretty sure she's on to something here. This has this mason alignments fingerprints all over it. Maximum return for minimum investment, O'Shaughnessy agreed, nodding firmly. And misdirection. And directed at at least three targets I can see already- God only knows how many secondary targets this thing is aimed at. The question is how we respond to it, Medusa pointed out. I think you were right that this was something I had to hear first while wearing my imperial governor's hat, Augustus, but I'm going to have to go ahead and brief Joachim and his cabinet on it. Among other things, if Anconbrant's really a representative sample— "'The majority of messengers from any of these resistance movements "'are going to be heading right here to Spindle. "'The Quadrant's government needs to know they're coming.' "'Kamalo nodded, and Medusa pursed her lips, "'thinking for several moments. "'Then... "'Should I assume Lady Goldpeak sent a recommendation along with her report?' "'She did, Madam Governor.' "'And you're not going to tell me what it was "'unless I pull it out of you with a pair of pliers, right?' a simple order to come clean will do, Madam Governor, Kamalo said with a smile. Still, I have to admit I'm curious to see whether your response parallels hers. All right, I'll give it to you. Her own smile faded and her eyes hardened. I think we need to send back orders to treat any messenger from our genuine resistance movement It was as smart of her as I would have expected to use a tree-cat to verify Ankenbrandt's truthfulness. As if they really had been in contact with Manticore all along. I don't see how we can afford not to. At the same time, though, we have to be cautious. We don't know what kind of booby-traps the alignment could have built into something like this. Don't forget those invisible starships of theirs.' A few of them, tucked away to ambush our units, responding to a resistance movement's call for assistance, could do a lot of damage. She cocked an eyebrow at Kumalo, and the burly admiral nodded. That's almost exactly what Admiral Goldpeak recommended, he said, and reached into his breast pocket. He extracted a chip folio and laid it on Medusa's desk. Here's her actual report, including the tree cat's, Alfredo's assessment of Ankenbrand's truthfulness. Thank you. Medusa scooped up the folio. She looked at it for a moment, then tossed it to O'Shaughnessy. You take a run through it first, Gregor. Be thinking about it after you finish, so we can exchange notes as soon as I'm through with it. Yes, my lady. Admiral Kumalo, unless Gregor and I come up with something that causes me to change my mind, we'll be sending a dispatch to Lady Goldpeak before the end of the day, confirming her own analysis and proposed course of action. At the same time, though, we obviously need to kick this farther up the chain to Foreign Secretary Langtry, Prime Minister Grantville, and Her Majesty as well. I'd like you, Captain Shoup, and Commander Chandler to provide your own individual appreciations to accompany that report back to landing. Yes, milady. In that case... As Duchess Harrington would say, she smiled. Let's be about it. Chapter 29 You know, Michelle Hankey said thoughtfully, I'm beginning to wonder exactly what qualifications the Sollies look for in candidates for their naval academy. I mean, there has to be a filtering process. You couldn't just go out and pick middies at random and get such an invariably stupid crop of flag officers there has to be some kind of system. If you just pick names out of a hat, for example, somebody would have to have a functional brain, right? You'd like to think so anyway, ma'am, Gervase Archer replied. He'd been working quietly on his minicomp when the dispatches couriered to Tillerman from Spindle arrived. May I ask what prompted the observation at this particular time, though? Oh, you certainly may, she said much more grimly, and entered a command. The dispatch she'd been viewing appeared on Gervase's display, and his eyes widened slightly as he saw the security header. He started to ask her if she was sure about giving him access, but quickly changed his mind. Countess Goldpeak didn't make that sort of careless mistake. Besides, as her flag lieutenant, he needed access to all sorts of information that didn't generally come the way of someone as junior as he was. The message had come directly from the Lynx Terminus, relayed to the Tillerman system, and addressed to Admiral Bennington for his information, since the Lynx CO hadn't been aware the Countess had moved to that system herself. The addressee list in the header showed the same message had been sent to Admiral Kumalo and Baroness Medusa in Spindle. It would have reached the Quadrant's capital star system just over two weeks ago, but the decision to copy it to Bennington and Tillerman meant 10th Fleet CO had gotten the information at least four or five days sooner than she would have if she'd had to wait for it to be relayed from Spindle. Now Gervais sat back, reading quickly, and his expression grew bleaker with every sentence. Then he came to the tabular data at the end. Shit. He blushed suddenly that dark magenta shade only a true redhead could accomplish, and looked up. Sorry about that, ma'am, but, but, but shit, she said, nodding. I've heard the term before, even used it on occasion, Gwen, and I can't say I fault your word choice. What was the lunatic thinking? Gervais shook his head. I don't think even Crandall would have fired in a situation like that. I'm not so sure there's anything Crandall wouldn't have done, said Michel. On the other hand, you may have a point. And apparently there's been some speculation back in Manticore about just how he might have been helped into doing it. More of that mind-control stuff, ma'am? Gervase's tone mingled disgust, apprehension, and doubt, and Michelle shrugged. I don't know, Gwen. Nobody knows what the damn stuff is or exactly how it works, and we're way behind the curve out here, thanks to how slowly information from home gets to us. According to the most recent speculation Duchess Harrington shared with me, it's not really mind control, though, and I have to wonder whether or not it would be capable of arranging something like this. Michelle sat silent for a handful of seconds, eyes narrowed and lips pursed while she considered the possibilities. Then her eyes refocused, and she shrugged again. I'm afraid the most important point isn't why he did it, but that he did it, she pointed out. The cat, as my mother was always fond of saying when someone screwed up, is definitely amongst the pigeons now. Pile this on top of what happened to Crandall, and everybody's on the back of the hexapuma. So if we don't want to end up inside, or to lose a few fingers and toes to it at least, I think it's time we do something a bit more proactive than just waiting around for the next Solly fleet to sail obligingly into disaster. Yes, ma'am. Gervaise nodded in understanding. Do you want me to set up an electronic conference, or would you prefer to have them over for supper tonight? A rule I learned from Duchess Harrington a long time ago, Gwen, Michelle said with a smile. Two rules, actually. Never discuss electronically what you have time to discuss in person and nothing builds a sense of teamwork and mutual trust like talking things over across a meal. You might want to write that down for your own later career. Yes, ma'am, I will, Gervase replied. So who do you want invited? Better make it all the task group and squadron commanders, she said after a moment. Talk to Chris, though. If there's room in my dining cabin to fit in the divisional commanders as well... That might not be a bad idea. And see to it that Commander Adenauer and Captain Armstrong are on the guest list. For that matter, let's get Commander Larson into the mix, too. Yes, ma'am, Gervais nodded. I'll get right on it. Chris Billingsley had done his usual efficient job of arranging the dining cabin. He'd been able to fit in more people than Michelle would have thought possible, and all of her divisional commanders were present after all. It made for a large crowd, and she doubted they were going to accomplish a great deal of detailed planning and organization for what she had in mind, but that wasn't really why she'd called these people together. She and her staff had already completed most of that. She waited until the excellent supper had been completed. The desserts had been consumed, the dishes had been cleared away, and her subordinates sat back with their beverages of choice. Then she tapped her crystal brandy snifter lightly with a fork. It chimed musically, and she cleared her throat as heads turned towards her all along the linen-covered horseshoe of the supper tables. I trust all of you enjoyed the meal? She asked with a smile, and a rumble of approval came back. Good. Her smile grew broader. I wouldn't want Master Steward Billingsley to get a swelled head or anything, but he does set a nice table, doesn't he? This time the rumble was one of laughter, broken here and there by a few fervent declarations of agreement. She let it subside, then sat back in her chair and surveyed the officers of her fleet. She'd arrived at Tillerman only ten tea days ago, and she could have wished for a little longer to exercise with her complete order of battle, minus, of course, what she'd sent off to Mobius and what she'd left in Montana. Admiral Bennington had obviously kept his people on their toes, however, and the unit she'd brought with her from Montana had slotted smoothly back into place with them. No admiral's ever really satisfied with how much time she's had to work up her command, Mike, she told herself. Or at least no admiral worth her beret is ever satisfied, because you can always tweak things somewhere, but they're good. They're really good, and there'll be time en route for more exercises. If you screw up, it won't be because of them. I'm sure you've all had time to at least skim the dispatches we've received from Spindle, she continued, her expression and voice both considerably grimmer than they had been. And I'm also sure that, like me, you find it difficult to believe even a Solly flag officer could have been stupid enough to pull the trigger when Duchess Harrington had the deck so totally stacked against him. Nonetheless, he did, and that leaves me with some decisions to make. She paused and the dining cabin was silent every set of eyes fixed upon her somehow the stars on her collar seemed heavier than they had when she sat down the solarian league has now deliberately violated the territory of the star empire of manticore twice both of those violations were clearly preplanned acts of military aggression in what the perpetrators believed would be overwhelming force in both cases The senior Solarian officer was offered multiple opportunities to rethink his or her actions and back off. In both cases, the officer in question chose not to do so. The Star Empire sought a diplomatic resolution to this confrontation, which, I remind all of us, began when a Solarian admiral destroyed a Manticoran destroyer division in time of peace and without warning from the beginning the Solarian League has declined to meet our efforts even halfway. I realize there is considerable evidence to support the idea that the League is being manipulated by this Mason alignment. In fact, I believe that to be true. But however it's happened, we've been placed on a collision course with the Solarian League and it shows absolutely no sign of being willing to turn aside. Moreover, Mesa couldn't manipulate the League into such actions if the League weren't already primed for them and corrupt enough to find them a comfortable fit. She paused once again, briefly, letting eyes like brown flint sweep the assembled faces. What we face is a war against the largest, most populous, most powerful star nation in history. Not a confrontation, not a conflict, not a crisis. Not any longer a war. And wars, as we've discovered against the People's Republic of Haven, aren't won by standing on the defensive. At the moment, we enjoy a crushing combat advantage. How long that advantage will last is impossible to estimate, and it seems evident to me that it's our duty to our empire and our empress to use that advantage as decisively as possible and as quickly as possible." and it's also this fleet specific responsibility to safeguard the star systems and citizens of the Talbot Quadrant. The best way to do both of those things, in my opinion, is to take the war to the Sollies. We didn't start it, they did, and now they can deal with the consequences of their own actions. Her voice was ribbed with battle steel, and her face might have been carved out of obsidian. Most of the officers listening to her knew she had been given no new orders along with the dispatches, that what she was truly proposing was to act entirely upon her own initiative, yet they also knew the manticorn tradition was that flag officers were expected to exercise their initiative. Not normally in situations with the potential consequences this one offered, perhaps, but still. I propose to move upon the Meyer system as soon as possible, she said flatly. Tenth Fleet will depart Tillerman no later than 36 hours from now. Our mission will be to force the surrender of Commissioner Verocchio and the entire Madras sector. My intention is to neutralize this sector as a potential base for operations against the Talbot Quadrant and to position ourselves to threaten the League's flank in order to force them to split their attention between us and any additional future operations against the Old Star Kingdom or our allies." I've already dispatched a request to Spindle to send forward additional ground forces from the Quadrant Guard's new training programs as quickly as possible to serve as garrisons. With them to provide a boots-on-the-ground occupying force and LAX and missile pods to provide a space-based deterrent to anything short of a heavy, sally battle squadron, we should be able to secure the sector and thus protect the Talbot Quadrant and cover our backs. I anticipate that once we've done that, We will move on towards additional objectives in the Verge or even into the Shell. She paused once more and inhaled deeply. It was very quiet in the dining cabin as the weight of her measured words sank home. As her subordinates grappled with the realization that their admiral truly did intend to take the war to the Solarian League. In a few moments, she said finally, we'll begin discussing the nuts and bolts of that movement. My staff has already completed the plans to get us underway and for our initial entry into the Meyer system. We've put together several possible scenarios for operations there, and we'll spend the trip gaming them out in the simulators, but before we get to that... She gathered up her brandy snifter and looked down the table to her flag lieutenant. He looked back at her, and she nodded slightly. Gervais Archer rose, gathering up his own wine glass, and raised it. Ladies and gentlemen, he said, I give you the Empire, the Empress, and the Navy, and damnation to the Sollies.
1: That was David Weber's Shadow of Freedom, Part 38, read by Alison Johnson. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to audible.com. Thanks to Laura Haywood Corey, Christopher Chifani, and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. An arousing round of Reisling's The Green Hills of Earth and a gratitude-laden case of metaphorical Mars bars, Milky Ways, Moon Pies, and Ginger Beers for science fiction legend Ben Bova, author of Mars Incorporated. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep
0: reaching for the stars.